0: This is a Siku University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters.
1: Hi, you're with Jocelyn Stickland for the Siku University podcast, The Grapevine. Today I'm speaking with senior researcher Kurt Heinzer from the university's Institute for Future Farming Systems. Kurt is based at the Siku University Bundaberg campus and is an expert in agricultural value chains within developing economies. Now Kurt, this sounds like a really interesting and important area of specialisation. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this work involves?
0: Value chains are an idea similar to the idea of a supply chain and refer to all the steps and processes that are required to bring a product from conception to consumer. In a supply chain you often have individual actors aiming to maximise their own benefits within a realm of a formal engagement or contract. Whereas in a value chain, the idea is that if if one works together and elevates the status of their own chain, then gains will be realised by all. Often they're more common in developing economies and are more common to be operating within informal trust-based relationships.
1: So essentially, I suppose a supply chain would involve um, a main player at the top, so a supermarket, for example, whereas in a value chain, you've got a group of people working together to achieve a common goal rather than one individual group aiming to benefit or reap the most benefit.
0: That's um, a good way of looking at it. Value chain projects or development projects, uh, when directed towards developing economies, often take two different routes. You have a lead firm intervention, which is very much as you've described. You have someone like Nestle coming into a country like Indonesia looking to secure uh, a supply of cocoa. Nestle, in this situation, will be directing terms of engagement, quality standards, and those smallholder farmers have to either play up to those rules and supply quantity and quality as stipulated by this lead dominant actor or they ultimately cannot be involved in the project a second type of project which is more in line or is exactly in line with the project we're doing in png is where you are developing a local value chain within the boundaries of of a local market and developing the capacity of each actor along that chain so that demand within the local market is met and that the gains are then shared among each person within that chain so you really have these two ideas you have a a global or lead firm intervention or a local market development intervention which is the focus of our work in png
1: so essentially they're they're all supply chains there's just different people who benefit um at different stages
0: i think it's ultimately a supply chain, as it's an efficient movement of a product from conception to consumer. It's just within a value chain. It looking it looks at the larger motivations of humans. It takes into broader societal context. It looks at the socioeconomic status, the asset thresholds of the individuals. A lot of these small holders within developing economies aren't ready to engage with formal markets or to be able to supply export markets. And actually, the supply of a local market is a really great precursor or first step to potentially achieving exports, or even as itself is a, is a step towards development and a much better societal position for their community.
1: You're an agricultural expert now, but you've had a pretty diverse career, starting off in banking before changing paths, um, doing your master's in agriculture in the Netherlands. Um, why the change? Um, did you come from a farming or agricultural family?
0: Um, my father is a chef from Austria. Uh, he left home quite young, at 13, and did an apprenticeship in a famous castle. He met my mother over there, and who was Australian, and they moved back to Australia, and for about 30 years, opened one restaurant after the next. Uh, only ever having one restaurant at a time, but uh, once they sort of sold one, we'd go on a trip to Europe or something, we'd come back, and they'd open another one. The last one we had was from the ages of, I was 12 to 16, and we lived in the restaurant so our family kitchen was also a commercial kitchen we all worked in the restaurant and I guess at the stage it felt quite normal but as I've gotten older and had more experiences with food and people who are interested in food the education I got around food, food quality and certainly hygiene was yeah second to none and has really instilled a a sort of a deep love of food within me But it was after working as a management consultant, I volunteered for Harvest, a charity which collects wasted or donated food in the morning and then delivers that to at-risk charities in the evening. I worked or I volunteered with them for over a course of six months and working there and volunteering there, I really understood that we waste a lot of food in the society and that actually agriculture touches on so many facets of life that i was really inspired by it and that really led me to want to work within agriculture and to study my masters in the netherlands
1: so after completing your masters you did a little bit of traveling and somehow wound up in la um now that's really interesting because you worked on a number of gardens um in la some of those were celebrity gardens. Um, I won't get you to name drop, um, but could you tell me a little bit more about what sort of gardens you worked on and maybe what your typical celebrity looks for in a garden?
0: The company I worked for was called Farmscape and their motto was stop landscaping and start farmscaping. Um, Ultimately we take a, a grass and turn it into an edible landscape and the types of sites were really diverse, from sporting stadiums to social housing to schools, uh, small residential celebrities, and then your largest residential were actually from incredibly wealthy people whose names you wouldn't know. The celebrities had obviously lovely houses, but the really extreme houses were from people who started hedge funds or just names you, you wouldn't know, just incredibly wealthy people. How What they look for, I guess, depends... Um, on how engaged they were. If they made their whole landscape, farmscape, then they really cared. Other times they would stick it to the side and it was more an idea that they thought was cool but weren't totally engaged with.
1: So it was more like a stylized sort of garden rather than a, a practical garden.
0: Exactly. Somewhere like En car or the Jonathan Club, both in downtown LA, where the Jonathan Club in particular has some incredible photos online of these beautiful old sort of stainless steel horse baths that have been repurposed to fit vegetable gardens right in the middle of downtown LA so surrounded by skyscrapers you know that sort of visual element was often used by restaurants as marketing um, but in the residential ones we often have really unique types of heirloom tomatoes a lot of colourful uh, salads that people really wanted. They wanted to see colour and something that they could they could eat. Um, and some of the celebrities were actually really, really lovely people. Uh, after you manage their gardens for a couple of months, they would be quite open. They'd love to come and talk about the crops. They'd love to hear what's being harvested this week and generally took an interest in your life.
1: Great. Did you have a favourite garden that you worked on over there? Was it a celebrity garden or...? Was it maybe one of the the more commercial gardens, like a restaurant garden that you worked on?
0: The sensory gardens that they put in at schools um, for children were always really interesting. Um, That made me look at plants in a different way rather than their taste or their shape. Uh, Often with the sensory gardens, it was all different types of things that would inspire kids and that was interesting. So
1: what do you mean by a sensory garden? What's
0: The feel of leaves... The smell of flowers, which birds they would attract. Um, there was lots of different. Often it was for younger age students who um, who didn't wouldn't necessarily eat the food, but would just interact with the with the plants. So it was more around interaction rather than what you'd be able to harvest from them. Although my favourite garden was um, one of the guys who in, developed the idea of a hedge fund. Um, who had an incredible house in the Pacific Palisades, it's kind of the wealthiest area of LA. It was set over seven really large terraces, had a really established um, fruit orchard, it had a huge undercover screenhouse for propagation and for se- in between seasons. And every morning when I went there on a Thursday, you had an incredible view over the Pacific, the sun was rising, it was just a beautiful garden to arrive at every Thursday morning. I, I would often arrive there really happy.
1: <laughs> Why leave that job? It sounds like an amazing job being outdoors, um, helping people to grow their own food. Um, was it just time to move on and explore something new? Or?
0: L.A., unfortunately, is an incredibly expensive city to live in. Um, I was paid pretty well. I thought I was paid pretty well, but in reality, the rent and the cost of living in L.A. after a year just became too much. Uh, And without a sort of a network or a side hustle, a very common word in L.A. is everyone needs a hustle, and that means... A sort of side business from your main job and that would pay for your rent or your spending money but with the stipulations of my visa I wasn't able to have a, a side hustle so without that I, I really struggled uh, I had even colleagues from farmscape that would sleep in their cars um, purely because finding a rental property that was affordable was so difficult and the divide between the east and the west of LA means that you couldn't live in the sort of cheaper eastern parts and work in the west. My gardens were all based around the exclusive, expensive sort of west side suburbs. And if you have to live in that area, it's very expensive. So unfortunately, although many people uh, don't have a good opinion of L.A., I actually found L.A. an incredibly beautiful city and enjoyed my time there immensely. It was just unfortunately a bit out of my price range. (laughs) Sure.
1: So after L.A., where did you go to from there?
0: ended up spending a year in cordoba living actually with a very close friend from australia and enjoying my time in south america that was my first chance to be down there it was a good opportunity to not only learn more about agriculture but to also learn a a third language
1: awesome so after argentina that's when you decided to come back to australia and you applied for the job here at Seeker University and now you're here in Bundaberg. Um, how is that different, I suppose? I, I guess this is a major agriculture centre in Australia, but it's obviously pretty different to LA or Argentina. What's yeah. been your experiences <laughs> since moving back?
0: In Argentina, you wouldn't have anyone even considering what to cook to dinner for dinner before 9pm. So when I tell people here that by 8.50 p.m. Bagara is dark and quiet and everyone has gone to bed, people don't believe me. (laughs) So I think that is a big difference. In L.A., you could see really innovative, interesting music every night of the week. And not just music, the culture in general. Um, Yeah, the culture in general in L.A. was just available everywhere, every night. So... Somewhere like Bagara, where I live, is everyone in bed very early. A A very very
1: sleepy sort of town. A very sleepy seaside town.
0: Yeah. Whereas that was a big motivation to come back. After working so long in Southeast Asia in the really poor air quality, and I must admit in Argentina the air quality was really poor as well. You don't think of that on holidays. If you go to holidays in Thailand, you don't think about the air quality because you're there for a short time. But I remember when I lived in Thailand after a year and a half, I was also wearing a mask on the street and you just feel the pollution everywhere you go. So that, like every choice in life, you have your good and your bad. And I think although I may be uh, lacking culture or a nightlife where I am, I get beautiful fresh air and incredibly clean ocean every day.
1: Plus your smack bang, obviously, you know, you're an agriculture expert, your smack bang You know, for anyone who hasn't been to Bundaberg, we are surrounded by crops and cane fields everywhere you go. So I suppose that's been pretty beneficial for you to be living somewhere like this in terms of creating contacts and doing your research.
0: I think also the 20 to 25-minute drive I have to work every morning where I see crops in all different stages of development all different types of crops. The beautiful red soil. It's a view I don't get tired of, and I often talk to people about how beautiful I think it is. Uh, although my work is predominantly outside of Australia, um, I enjoy being able to buy uh, really fresh ingredients all the time yeah. from within my area, which is
1: a lot. I mean, of pi- for me personally, being able to buy things direct from the farm through honesty boxes is probably one of the best things about living here in Bundaberg.
0: Absolutely. You know, that is, and you see it everywhere, you know, in in Bundaberg, you're not ever going to pay more than $2 a kilo for sweet potato. Yes. (laughs) And and there's lots of really, really great benefits like that. A a farmer I know here who does hydroponic ginger also has a fruit shop, a fruit and veggie shop connected to his property. And he sources all local ingredients in a sort of a one-stop shop and just developing relationships outside of work with these people is really great to hear. How's their season going? How's their crop going? How's the other crops going? It's just it's a great way to have a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the in the horticulture of Bundaberg.
1: Sure. So, I mean, you're based here in Bundaberg. Um, Bundaberg is one of our main centres for the Institute for Future Farming Systems, headed up by Professor Phil Brown. Um, he's a renowned expert in the horticulture space um, and has been working on a project in PNG, which you're also now part of. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work in Papua New Guinea and what it is you do over there? How often do you have to travel?
0: The work in PNG is great. It is a research for development uh, project funded by ACR, the Australian Centre for International Agriculture Research. It is looking at the commercialisation or supporting commercial sweet potato farmers. The idea of a commercial farmer, in perhaps in our mind, is someone who owns a large, bit, large, large swath of land. And perhaps has a lot of machinery. Whereas in the PNG context, a commercial farmer is someone who has is aggregating sweet potato harvests from their communities and looking to sell those in distant urban markets they might not necessarily have a lot of land or physical assets but they are motivated. So a commercial farmer in the PNG sense is more around those who are motivated to supply markets further distant markets ultimately. Um, we are working with farmers throughout the main production regions of the highlands. We are installing screenhouses so that they can propagate cleaned versions of popular local varieties of sweet potato to ultimately access more formal markets such as supermarkets, catering companies, schools.
1: There are, as you mentioned before, lots and lots of sweet potatoes in Bundaberg. Um, Are they different to the ones grown in Papua New Guinea? I I hear there's a number of varieties of sweet potato. Um, Are there any differences?
0: I've heard and read different statistics of up to 100 different varieties in Papua New Guinea. Our project has cleaned or removed the viruses from 8 to 10 or so of the major varieties that are sold throughout all the open markets and also within to, into the formal markets. The, they often, the, the taste preference is different there, um, whereas our um, sort of orange flavoured sweet. Variety, the Beauregard, is very popular here in Australia and you are starting to see newer varieties here in Australia. In PNG, the varieties are perhaps more closely aligned with that of a potato, often a more earthy taste, less uniformity in shape and size, and often consumed boiled at a roadside market. The farmers or people within the highlands get up to 75% of their energy intake from sweet potato.
1: Wow, so it's it's a real sustenance crop rather than a commercial
0: crop. Absolutely, and one of our project team who stayed with me for a few days uh, at the end of last year, I had tried to show him a lot of the foods that we commonly eat here, but after a few days going past the sign for $2 kilo sweet potatoes on our way home, Johnny very politely asked me if we could have sweet potato tonight, and once I cooked it, that's all he ate for the next, <laughs> the rest wow. of his stay. So yeah. for them, it's a real, it's, a com- it's much more than a, a staple. It's a comfort. It's, yeah. it's a huge part of their existence. And and, um, I guess in, in a sense, in a way that we don't have that in, in Australia. We don't have sort of one crop that really signifies home or has such a dominant part in our life. So that was interesting to see. How Johnny interacted with it out here uh, and it, when i'm when I 'm there with him png he often stops at roadside markets to to eat them and that 's how I see many people consuming it over there
1: well, that's so interesting how how has the project team been accepted over there like what what's the community response to the work that you're doing
0: it's a good question that's um, as with any development project, you rely on external, well, local partners, project partners. Uh, And because there is, certainly within PNG um, and communities throughout the world where there is a a small reluctance to outsider influence, we've had some issues in terms of communities assuming... or uh, We have had some issues in communities thinking perhaps we are introducing viruses or... Um, the screen houses that we are erecting propagating viruses, Um, but generally we engage our local partners to be our point of contact. We are sort of behind the scenes conducting research, designing interventions, making contacts to market, but for a project to be successful after the funding has ceased you need local engagement and you need not only farmers engaged, but you need local organizations to have the capacity to continue to engage with these farmers i think phil does a great job in trying to increase the capacity of our partners our local partners to to find their own market opportunities and to design interventions that are suitable for their own context and the growers at which they work which I think is often lacking in development projects and is perhaps the largest criticism that once funding ceases, the project ultimately ceases. And any progress made during this period of funding often are no longer realised once that funding ceases.
1: Sure. So how often do you need to travel to PNG as part of this project?
0: I get up to PNG every three months. I would see... In the first year, it was often around finding my feet um f- a few initial trips, whereas now I feel a lot of things that we put in place within that first year are coming and also before in the years before I started are coming to a to a point now and I have to probably go up there more often now um so yeah, I would say three or four times a year for two to three weeks each time.
1: So I suppose your work in PNG. You mentioned before about um I suppose the connection with sweet potatoes. um, Plus the fact that you came from a family of restaurateurs. And you've travelled a lot as well. How how has that shaped your attitude to food? Like you know how do you see food? Is there a particular cuisine that you are most fond of?
0: Although I don't have a a favourite cuisine. I think that's a great thing about traveling is to seeing how a society interacts with its food and and its preferences in food is is really unique. I see it in everywhere in every country even within Europe, even within all the different countries of europe um, everyone has a slightly different take on the same foods that we're consuming in Australia, but they uh, are prepared differently, are looked at sort of differently, one crop that is favoured here is maybe not favoured somewhere else. I think that is perhaps my, the biggest interest in working in different countries is to see how people interact with food.
1: So before you mentioned you volunteered with Oz Harvest um, and food waste was a major issue that you found while doing that. Um, obviously that's still a huge problem, um, not just here in Australia but across the world. Do you see a solution to being able to fix that?
0: I think those people who don't live in Bundy wouldn't see it, but those that live in Bundy would see once they harvest the watermelons, how many watermelons remain, once they harvest the sweet potatoes, the same story. We leave a lot of harvest still on farm. We lose a lot during the supermarket process, and then we also lose a lot more uh, once it gets into the consumer's home. I think it's a really really difficult question. I think you can definitely do something with the waste product potentially from farms whereas the consumer end is, is a much more difficult part that they're looking at. Um, there are some really, you know, the charitable food trust in the UK has, has some good ideas. There are people working towards finding solutions, but like many of the larger issues we're facing as a society, it would take a change from individuals. I think we often look at larger technological solutions or a one solution fits all, whereas I believe that it comes down to being the change that you want to see in the world. I think it's always been that case. So if we want to tackle something like food waste, we have to start thinking about our own actions rather than a larger idea of mm-hmm. food waste.
1: So when you mean our own actions, do you mean in terms of planning what we're buying and
0: planning what you're buying, potentially a compost or worm farm, if that's something that's available to you. I shop regularly. I don't do one large shop, I shop every couple of days. And although I don't like shopping and find that it's annoying to have to do this, I waste a lot less in that way. If you do a big shop at the start of the week, by the time you get to the end of the week, if you're not gonna make a soup, a lot of the vegetables you've bought are probably not looking as good as you did Six or seven days ago, I think. Therefore, if you can shop every couple of days, you minimise that happening. And if you plan your meals in ahead, you know more what you need.
1: Where do you see your work taking you in the future?
0: I I believe in value chains as a way as a development tool. Uh, so I see my work. I see continuing to work in this field. I think I'm doing research at the moment around the psychosocial factors that influence people's decision-making within value chains, and I think this is perhaps a part of value chains which hasn't been looked at at great depth yet, and I think it's intrinsic to them. I think we've looked a lot at the physical supply and a lot of the agricultural elements, but I think why people are deciding to work with others or not to work with others is is as important as post harvest management. I see myself continuing to work in this um, in developing economies. I think after working in developing, when development projects in developing countries what I have here where I can work in somewhere like PNG but live in Australia is the best of both worlds. You live in a country where um, environmental standards keep your air clean but you can still work you know, the best thing about PNG is that every time I go there, I'm reminded what the real world looks like. In here, you legitimise first world problems when people tell you about them. Whereas you get there and the moment you get out of the plane, you're like, okay, you know, this is how a lot of people and the majority of people in this world live.
1: So, Kurt, um, you obviously travel quite a bit for work, but you are a pretty avid traveller just in general, um, can you tell me about some of your travels and maybe how that's influenced some of the research that you do?
0: I think um, travelling for me is about just seeing something that is really confusing every day. In all those places I've lived, there wasn't a day where I didn't see something that made me scratch my head, not in a way that was judgmental, just like in a way that you've never seen before before, um, I did my first overseas trip by myself at 13, and basically have been over, and went overseas every year since. And then at 20, I left Australia for good and only have recently come back. I did three trips in Europe in a van. I had two old Volkswagens T3s, and the last trip I did was on a, a newer, in, in in quotations of a, a T4. I went. T- on those trips down to Morocco, all through the east of Europe, up through Scandinavia. I did a great trip from LA to New York uh, along the west coast and then ducking over and took a boat from New York to England, where I was moving at the time. I can tell everyone, if you're ever thinking of going from New York to London, check how much it is to go on the Queen Mary 2. Because for me it was only $200 extra than a flight and you got a seven-night accommodation travel experience in the middle of it. I must admit, what was really beautiful around that trip was right in the middle between the two, between Southampton where we were, where we were going to, to arrive and New York where we left, was the sea got really heavy. And at night, when there was no moon, I realised how powerful and scary the ocean is and how all those people who travelled for so many years via ship I can't imagine how scary it was for them. The funny part about being the Queen Mary is that you have that realization standing on the top of the deck, whereas then you can go inside and sit inside a planetarium or a 3D cinema. That's, That's
1: completely... And it's
0: another, totally another world. But I, I still find that even when you are traveling on a cruise ship or, or traveling in a way that people might think is not very exciting. It can still teach you things and show you things that are really profound. Uh, I think it always comes down to the individual. You can go on on an organized tour and still be really blown away by what you see. I don't think there's any right or wrong way of traveling. I think too many people think, oh, I have to do it in this way or I have to do in the most extreme way. Whereas I think if you just do it with your eyes open, you're always gonna see and, and feel something probably quite profound.
1: So you mentioned your first overseas trip was at 13 and that was a solo trip.
0: Yeah, I was a a quite excitable, energetic 13-year-old that was getting in a lot of trouble at school and my father thought the best way to give me an education was to send me overseas. I was sent to school in Austria and lasted about four months before I told my parents I was doing a school trip to Munich and I needed money, but actually instead I bought myself a flight and went to London for two months because I'd found it really challenging at the time, you know, being 13 and living with different family members that I didn't know very well and learning a new language and being in a new school and I found it all pretty overwhelming and I thought, well, at least in London they speak my language. At 13, you think you're really old and mature, whereas I think I got by by people looking at me as the young kid I was, and they taking a, a shine or a liking to me. I remember I stayed at the Generator Hotel in London, and I only had enough money for the first three nights, but the guy was really nice and could kind of see what I was doing. He let me stay in the staff accommodation for those two months for free, basically. and yeah it was a really cool experience after that I went back to school in Austria for another four months before coming home
1: so what does a 13 year old do (laughs) in London on their own and did your parents know about this?
0: Um, I after a while I did send them a postcard and thankfully the internet wasn't what it is today and calling was still generally via landlines. so I could live pretty much to my own accord um, I just saw London. That was my first time there, and and that was kind of, it felt, often in Europe, it felt quite overwhelming with the languages and everything being so different. Whereas London felt like the perfect combination between familiar in terms of the language and certain things and new. So I just just made friends with older people generally and tagged along. Um, I, I thought it was a really it was in the summer. It was a great time to be in London.
1: Cool. So after that, you came back to Australia? That was, was it out of your system then until you were a bit older? or
0: That was the hardest part about having that experience and having all those travel experiences at a young age. The very white, very small town that I grew up in and the mentality of those people were actually harder to deal with once I'd seen what the world had to offer. It was a challenge to be in school, and I knew that I had to stay in school as long as I could so that I could eventually get out of Australia. So I guess it, in one way it was motivating because it kept me in school and made me to get good grades. But it meant dealing with the majority of people there was really difficult.
1: Sure. So what did your parents do when you got back? Like, Was there any punishment for that? Or,
0: Well, Dad had given me a one-way ticket. Um, And he, I think he envisioned me perhaps finishing school there. So he was more disappointed that I didn't last longer. (laughs) But I felt that I, because I was left to my own devices over there, I wasn't learning as much as I really should have. And I was only kind of going to school when I wanted to. And I knew I was just not not doing the right thing in the sense that I wasn't learning you know I was at school but I wasn't learning and I knew if I wanted to one day get a job I really had to get Mm -hmm. serious about it so that was my really main reason for coming home I must admit also homesick I think everyone of us probably feels that at some stage or another and that was for me the, the probably the strongest I've ever felt it and it was good to know that feeling then so that it kind of allowed me To spend the next sort of 12 years overseas when I did because you know that feeling will pass and that as soon as you see your family and friends again it's like no time has ever been so that made the feeling of homesick less for me because if you have a really strong connection with someone or your family that doesn't that's not diminished by time.
1: Mm. So I mean I don't know how you would top being a 13 year old (laughs) alone in London but have there been any really amazing experiences or, or one experience on its own in terms of your travels that's outweighed anything else?
0: Um, Morocco was really beautiful. It's one of those great places where the roads were surprisingly really good, but the beautiful surfside towns built into the cliffs in these old sort of mud brick style, that was an incredible view. Every morning waking up there, I spent six weeks in a beautiful place called Imsawan. It's about two hours south of Esawira, where Jimi Hendrix spent a lot of time in the 70s. Although, but I must admit, in the last 10 years, my highlight was really a lot of the times in L.A. You know, you were going inside properties that you will never have a chance to own. Incredible views. Even just driving around in L.A., often when you would be facing east, driving towards east, you'd see snow-capped Sierras in the back, and palm-lined streets at your side it was always I always found something beautiful to look at every day in LA so I'm always surprised when people go there as tourists and say that it's horrible they didn't like it I would spend a lot of afternoons at the sort of uh, southern end of Venice Beach watching the planes, the big uh, A380s take off really low um, just looking out to the ocean for me I had a really a lot of highlights in LA it was just Unfortunately I couldn't afford to live there.
1: (laughs) Sure. Have you had any terrifying experiences along the way?
0: I found the second van that I own, um, the T3 had its engine in the back and when it would overheat we had to move all of our sleeping, all of our stuff towards the front to get to the engine and I was, we were stuck on the side of a road in Portugal and the Portuguese are well renowned in Europe for being their worst drivers and we the wind just picked up and took part of the mattress that went straight into the oncoming car who then anchored it and then caused all these other cars to anchor it and we thought oh, we've just started something big here thankfully it was at night well I guess that's how it occurred in the first place it was dark and surprisingly enough all these guys stopped in time they were all really angry and you know we copped some pretty heavy Portuguese serfs but uh, that was all good. Everyone was okay. Everyone was okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess in the States doing the big road trip um, you're often seeing in movies about how strict their police are and we had a, a car come up behind us a police car one time and being nervous I dropped the speed and that's when they flashed their lights, and he'd been following us for quite some time, but as soon as we dropped the speed is when he flashed his lights, and he came over and their first dance was incredibly aggressive, but the Australian accent really damaged ut- straight away. <laughs> so I find that's, that's a pretty that's, that's the bit that gets me most out of trouble is the Australian accent.
1: <laughs> like this podcast, don't forget to rate review and share with your friends.